Hello and welcome to another episode of PPC Town Hall. My name is Fred Valles. I'm the host of this session. I'm one of the co-founders of Optimizer as well. So today's going to be a fun one because we're going to be talking about a topic that, quite honestly, nobody knows very much about, but it's hugely critical to the future of PPC. As you've all seen, new browsers have come along. They're starting to block third-party cookies. There's uh, privacy laws coming left and right. The world is just fundamentally changing. And some of the things that we as PPC practitioners have been able to use for the past 20 or so years, because privacy regulations were pretty lax and because third-party cookies were available to us, well, those things are soon going to go away. So that changes the game for all of us. And again, we don't have all the answers, but we do know a lot of the things that are changing, some of the things Google is thinking about, and that's what this session is about today. So we're going to be talking about the end of third-party cookies, the introduction of Flock, the introduction of Turtle Dove. If you don't know what those terms are, don't worry. We're going to explain it. We're going to keep it non-technical, and we're going to try to make it actionable. So we're going to tell you what you can do to start preparing for these things. So welcome to another episode of PPC Time. And a big welcome to our guests today, Nava Hopkins and Amy. Um, so good to, to see both of you. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you for having us. Yeah, right. thank you for having us. Yeah. Nava, let's start with you. Um, so since the last time we had you on the show, you've uh, you transitioned roles working for a new company. So tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days. Sure. So uh, Justino is actually, uh, Justino got me specifically because of what we're about to talk about. Uh, so they are a CRO suite that helps folks uh, earn uh, that first party data, uh, create amazing converting experiences, uh, enhance the path to conversion. Uh, and my role there is to actually be a liaison between the paid media community uh, and their tool. They have a phenomenal uh, suite of, of CRO on-page optimizations. Uh, but more importantly, uh, they are able to help that cross-platform conversation. So as we think about attribution, as we think about uh, generating those, those first-party data pieces, uh, I am helping them uh, help all of us uh, be, be, get ahead of Flock, get ahead of uh, that potential retargeting death. All right. Sounds like the right time to make that sort of a move. Exciting company, so uh, thanks for joining us. Amy Bishop, uh, stuff is new in your life as well, right? Still cultivate mar cultivative marketing, uh, but you've also yeah. taken on a new role, I think, at SCJ, so tell us a little bit about what's going on with you. Yeah, that's right. So I'm still heading up Cultivative, which is a paid search consultancy, but uh, recently I've also started working with SCJ to help with their paid media um, news coverage, which has been really exciting, really fun. Uh, just kind of helps keep me on top of everything um, as opposed to reading what other people have shared. Now I'm kind of responsible for coming up with the articles and, and writing those myself. So it's a great way to uh, make sure that I'm always staying on top of any new information that's coming out. Nice. So uh, you're the new Susan Winograd or the new Ginny Marvin, I guess. Um, yeah, those are really big shoes to fill. So I don't mm -hmm. know if I could call myself the new one of either of those ladies, but uh, I definitely aspire one day to uh, maybe fill those shoes. Exactly. Starting to fill them and then on to greater and better things. Well, yeah. uh, 
great to have both of you on the show. Before we get into the topic of Flock, I did want to make an announcement. So Optimizer is going to be hosting its first ever user conference. It's going to be called Unlevel. And we have some great speakers for it. So we're very fortunate. We have John Lee from Microsoft. We have Nava, who's on the show today, many other great speakers. Um, this is going to be a free event. It's going to be happening on May 18th. Uh, it may not work for everybody's time zones, but because it's on demand, we do want people to register and come check it out because we're going to have some great educational content. And that's really one of the things we do at PPC Town Hall and that we're also very big on at Optimizer is PPC is honestly an exciting space because it changes so often, but it also means we have to do a lot of work ourselves to keep on the cutting edge. And so we just wanted to make that easier especially in the pandemic days when it's very difficult to go to in-person conferences, even to this day. So, uh, so we're going to be putting on a virtual event. If you're an existing user of Optimizer, you're going to get a benefit of access to a special track, which is our roadmap track, where you're going to be able to work directly with our product managers, give feedback to them, and hear what they're working on. If you're not existing, an existing Optimizer user, join us as well. Again, it's free. You're going to hear some of the, the big topics in the industry and also get to explore a little bit about what Optimizer is about. So we'll have the landing page for that. You can start signing up and that'll be happening in a few weeks. So we're super excited about that. All right, but uh, oh yeah, and the other thing, um, lots of people viewing live today, so that's fantastic. So uh, tell us where you're calling in from, say hello using the comment section. That is also how you can ask us questions and start contributing to the conversation here and steer us in the direction that you want, right? Tell us uh, what you want to know more about or tell us if we're losing you and then you got some specific questions. We'll show that on screen with your picture. So let's make it interactive and engaging. But with that, I figured we start maybe, uh, Amy, could you talk us through a little bit about like, why are we having a session on Flock? What's changing? What is Flock all about? And why is it important? Yeah, absolutely. So we've known for a while that third-party cookies were going away. Um, what we maybe didn't know was exactly how those would be replaced. So um, earlier this year, Google announced they won't build alternative identifiers to try to track individuals around the web. And instead, they introduced Flock. Flock stands for Federated Learning of Cohorts. Flock is designed to aggregate data about groups of people in order to continue to support advertisers through cohorts. So cohorts would be a variation of kind of what we would typically think of as audiences. And so they would create these cohorts while still protecting the privacy of the people in these cohorts while allowing monetization use cases such as interest-based advertising, ads measurement, reporting, and other scenarios like that that we've come to rely on third-party cookies for. Yeah, and so um, we're going to spend a few minutes here setting a bit more context. But so Nava, like, explain to us first-party and third-party cookie and like why, why do people hate third-party cookies so much? Sure. So when we think about first party versus third party, uh, first party is data that you own. You have created an experience uh, that the user is willing to give you that information. And also it is uh, the user has completed actions on your site. Uh, so the ability to, to have just analytics of did did a, a shopping cart belong to a user uh, and just being able to, to pick out that information, uh, did traffic happen on your site, you will still be able to see. Uh, and if you were able to earn that email, you were able to uh, create that that bond, you will still be able uh, to target through things like customer match and customer audiences on those third party sites uh, and through the ad networks. Third party data is when a user does something, you used to be able to, and, and you still 
to a certain extent are able to, as as it's being depreciated, uh, nag the user as they would go to these other sites to remind them to go get your product, to remind them to complete the purchase, to remind them to, to go do XYZ thing. So third-party data was basically any data that you did not specifically own. Uh, so think about buying email lists, think about uh, publishers that you just, uh, you, you don't own the channel, so you can't control uh, what's what's there. So when we think about first-party data versus third-party data, a, a good way to think about it is first-party data is that trusted relationship that a person has opted in to talk to you. Third-party data is kind of the uh, ticket walker uh, trying to, or scalper trying to get you to buy the ticket. Right, because the ticket scalper knows you just showed up to the arena. And exactly. Might be interested in a ticket, and so the example in in PPC would be, you know, I've been on Edmunds.com, I've been on Cars.com, so I'm clearly shopping for a new car. And then out of left field, some like Mercedes dealership comes in and says, "Hey, Fred, here's an ad for you. Do you want to buy this car?" And it's like, whoa, like why does Mercedes know that I've been shopping for a car because I haven't been to that website. Well, one one thing, and I I, I hope uh, we'll we'll all dive into this, and this might be kind of jumping ahead of uh, the desired agenda, uh, but there is this idea uh, with with cohorts uh, being very similar uh, to in market audiences, custom intent audiences. So the ability to to still say, "Hey, Fred, you seem like you're interested in cars," but it won't be, "Hey, Fred," it'll be. Fred amongst a thousand, two thousand, five thousand, ten thousand other people that show similar browsing behavior. So you still will be able to have that contextual targeting. It's just not going to be, hey, you looked at that 2015. You seemed like you were really interested in financing options. Here's a very specific offer to you based off of the exact things that you did. Right. And, and Amy, yeah. but I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think maybe it might help to talk just about a little bit about how exactly Flock replaces cookies. And maybe I should have covered this in kind of the um, initial uh, piece that I gave. But the big difference is that cohorts are built within the browser using on-device processing um, to keep each person's history private on the browser. So Chrome browsers specifically, we're specifically talking about Chrome when we're talking about Flock. They will use algorithms to create a very large number of cohorts um, based upon people that kind of share the same interests, but each of that, uh, each person's cohort information in their individual browsing history is kept private. So only their browser itself within that specific device will be able to look at their history and then assign them to a cohort. So initially your browser, or sorry, essentially your browser determines which cohort corresponds um, to your recent web browsing history, grouping you with thousands of other people so that then when you're visiting a site, they have the ability, that site has the ability to ask your browser which cohort you belong to. And then your browser will give them an identification number of the cohort. Um, and then it's essentially giving them only that little piece of information as opposed to third-party cookies, which would have allowed companies to kind of follow you individually across different sites around the web. Um, so Flock essentially works on your device without your browsing history being shared. So to give a more specific example, like for instance, when you're browsing Chrome, it will tell that site that you're part of this specific cohort number. And then it's up to that website to actually know what that cohort number means. Um, so for instance, if that cohort number means that I'm interested 
and to your uh, to your point, like Mercedes, then it's going to give like a, an ID, like one, two, three, four, five, six, and it's going to tell the website this person is part of cohort one, two, three, four, five, six, and then that website has to take that information and determine what ad to show based upon that. But they're not going to receive any more context about me or my browsing habits or what else that I've looked at. So it's a lot more private than what third-party um, cookies used to be and what used to be shared as part of that. So that raises the big question. Uh, okay, so I'm an advertiser. I go into Google, I'm like, okay, I want in-market car buyers for a specific brand, that's my audience, go and show my ads, easy. And now you're kind of saying that as an advertiser, I'm gonna have to be like, I want to target one, two, three, AW, Nine to six. Yeah. And so um, I think from an advertiser standpoint, uh, especially since we'll be for, for many of us uh, that are working through the Google ads platform, it's going to probably be made simple for us. Um, I would say where some of the pain points are going to lie are going to be on some of the uh, other ad serving platforms that are going to have to figure out how to decode this and make something of it. Um, so I think from an advertiser standpoint, I actually believe that the impact is less for the advertisers as it is for some of the other folks that are involved and accustomed to using third-party cookies. And does that perhaps start touching a little bit about Bernanke and and I don't know if we want to talk about that here for a second, right? But so Bernanke is this uh, thing that came out in the past week or so through a Texas lawsuit against Google, where it sounds like Google is giving itself an unfair advantage in the auction for display network. Um, and so you're kind of saying the same thing might happen here in, in the roundabout way. So if you're on Google, because it's Google having built these cohorts, they can tell you maybe what's in these cohorts. Whereas if you're off Google, it's you don't have quite the same information. And what is Bernanke? Yeah, and, and it's hard to say, you know, I don't want to make accusations because there's just too little information for us to really know. But just to kind of, I, I do think there's potentially some things that are coincidentally close here. Um, so just for like a little bit of background, um, Texas is leading a multi-state lawsuit against Google. And the original complaint that was filed in December claims that Google uses its monopoly power to control pricing and engage market collusion to rig auctions. Um, that same filing mentions a project which was codenamed Jedi Blue, and that was an agreement between Google and Facebook where essentially Facebook agreed not to compete too heavily with Google, but in exchange for preferential treatment on Google's advertising network. And I believe there was also a minimum spend that Facebook also agreed to hit in order to make it worth Google's while. Um, but Anyway, as part of um, as part of this ongoing lawsuit, Google filed documents, um, presumably uh, accidentally, that were unredacted, and they detailed Project Bernanke, which is what we're talking about here. Um, and Project Bernanke was said to be an internal Google program which allegedly made use of data from publishers as well as competitor bidding models to try to determine their bids for specific placements. Um, and initially, it really made it sound like it was uh, kind of for Google's own promotion of Google. But I really am pretty sure that it's more of 
Google's promotion of its ad network in kind of comparison uh, to other, either other networks or um, other, sorry, it, it, like in comparison to other exchanges. Essentially, mm -hmm. they were using this data to make sure that the clients on their exchanges were getting these placements at the best prices compared to what other uh, what other competitors were. Interesting. And I mean, I think it's, again, to the point that things are becoming a bit more complicated and obviously, like, online advertising is all about big data and how you use that data. That's what gives you your advantage. Um, and that data has been relatively easy and free flowing, but now some of the data is going away. Some of the data that we still will have is going to come maybe a little bit harder to use. So I think that's what makes all of this so interesting. Uh, we actually have a good question that I want to dive into here a bit. Um, but Vince is asking a specific question about how these cohorts work, right? So say, um, in my example, and, and Vince, thank you very much for assuming I'm 35. I'm actually a bit older than that. Um, but yes, I'm, and, and I do wear a red hat. So no, actually I don't wear a red hat, that, so <laughs> I just understood the red hats might mean something completely different here. So, but yes, say you have these attributes of a user, how do you figure that they're in a certain cohort, not a different cohort? And this is actually through a mechanism Google calls SimHash. Uh, and what's nice about Flock and TurtleDove is that all of these are open source systems. So you can actually look at the code, you can see the implementations and there's a lot of technical detail about it. But what Google is fundamentally doing is it's saying, well, here's the behaviors that this person has taken within their browser. And that's uh, fed into a SimHash uh, algorithm. And SimHash is basically saying, okay, let's take these behaviors and, and, and put that into a unique key. But it's not a unique key for every single behavior. Um, it's called SimHash for similar hashing, right? So two users who do kind of the same thing, but not exactly the same thing, would hash to the same key and the same cohort. And so that's where you're going to start seeing, um, you know, perhaps somebody wearing a red hat and being 35 years old and visiting Mercedes might also fall in the same cohort as somebody visiting the BMW site. Um, and by the way, the demographic aspect and weigh in uh, Nava and Amy, but I don't think the fact that you're 35, that's not part of SimHash, right? I mean, what we're talking about here is really what websites have you visited and what has your behavior been? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, and, and that's where it comes down to. So with SimHash, uh, I don't have to visit exactly admins.com and cars.com to fall into the same SimHash uh, as somebody who's visited similar sites about cars. Um, and that's kind of the unknown. And, and I can't remember exactly how many cohorts would be in this first iteration, but it is actually limited. And so in SimHash, you can set um, the, the binary length. And so that controls how many cohorts you can have. And I thought that the number in the initial phase was gonna be relatively small. So um, that's kind of bad from a targeting perspective, right? Because a lot of people doing very different things are gonna come in, into the same cohorts. So you lose a lot of precision, um, but the trade-off and the benefit is that you get a lot more privacy because it's unlikely that somebody would fall into a cohort by themselves. The other technical detail here, um, and again, please weigh in on this if, if you have any thoughts on it, but there's there's fundamentally a two-level system. So the first one is the assignment into a flock cohort. The second one is for that cohort to be able to be used. It has to pass a certain number of users. 
So even in the situation where there's only five people going into a cohort, Google has put in place a mechanism that says, well, even though you asked to show ads to this cohort, we're disallowing it because we haven't reached the minimum threshold for how many people are in it. So it's it's too likely you could actually figure out who these five people might be. One thing, uh, and we, we kind of touched on this on the Twitter thread leading up to um, this town hall, is ad pl platform performance is limited if you try to target too small a group. There is just a threshold where there just isn't enough data, there isn't a search volume, there just isn't gonna be enough. So when we think about cohorts, number one, uh, it's important to remember that the cohort is still gonna compete in an auction with other audience types. Uh, so the, the basic premise of, of Turtle Dove is that it's it's going to check to see uh, what is the better match, what is the better bid, what is the um, what ad should win between one of these cohort audiences and uh, just an, an in-market audience and what I like to call native audiences. Uh, the other thing to think about is just we are already used to, from a search standpoint, keywords with low search volume. Uh, there are just inherently going to be certain ideas, certain... Uh, groups of folks that if we try to target them specifically, there just isn't enough for either the ad platform uh, to justify uh, the, the the auction because it's just that there isn't enough. So an ad's not going to serve. Um, the other piece is when you think about the persona behind the cohort, uh, I actually don't mind the loss of precision because if I get too precise, I can pigeonhole myself into individual sales. And individual sales, while useful, uh, don't have scale. So as we're thinking about uh, targeting and, and, and how we position our creative, how we position our campaigns, uh, this might actually be a very good kind of kick in the pants to think about how, how what kind of audiences are we targeting? What kind of personas are we building? Uh, and, and how can our creative better serve a persona as opposed to an individual person and nagging them into giving them giving us our money or their money. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that sounds like a, a good strategy. Yeah, and I would add to that, um, from an audience perspective, too, we're already accustomed to, even if you upload an audience of email addresses, if, it's, if it doesn't match to enough people, um, you can't use it. So I think we're all kind of already accustomed to ensuring that audience sizes are big enough. So um, this, I don't think, I don't think that particular part of it is uh, going to be hugely impactful because it shouldn't be really, really different from what we're already used to. And then here we have a question. So if a cohort is not large enough, um, what about its availability? So again, let's dive into some of the technical details here to help you understand that. So the cohorting or the flock scheme is currently set to renew every week. So every week, Google would recalculate what cohort you fall into, um, right? So it's it's more likely that this would be treated like a low uh, search volume keyword, which means um, that you can still have the keyword and at some point it's just not serving, but you don't really know that. Google just gives you a flag that maybe it's not eligible. But then the next day, all of a sudden, it could become eligible because more people are searching for that keyword. Same thing with these uh, uh, the flock mechanism, right? So there's a weekly recalculation of what cohort you fall into. Um, I also want to bring up Turtle Dove, right? So Nava, you kind of mentioned it, and I think we focused on flock a little bit so far. So flock again is about 
what behaviors have you done? What websites have you visited? And that assigns you to a cohort. Um, there's a separate initiative, which is called Turtle Dove. Um, and this is actually many iterations in and all the iterations have been called a species of bird. Um, but this is for remarketing. Okay, so two different types of audiences. They have different names, so kind of confusing. But Turtle Dove is how do you remarket to someone? Um, this is actually really interesting to me because when we're talking broadly about third-party cookies going away, right? So, um, but if somebody's been to my website and I want to remarket to them, is that not a first-party cookie? Like, why do we have to do something different here? So, uh, oh, go ahead, Amy. Oh, I was just gonna say, so within Google's ecosystem, it should still be considered first party because they're also considering all of that logged in data. So basically their walled garden, they're considering first party data as well. Where it starts to cross the lines with third party is when you start delivering ads on other publisher sites that you don't own because third party tracking is a big part of how those users are tracked. So that's where Fledge comes in. And essentially what that strives to do, so Fledge is an iteration of Turtle Dove. Turtle Dove was proposed to allow advertisers or ad tech companies to create um, audiences or sorry, cohorts um, based upon their own first party data um, to try to inform what ads that particular consumer or group of consumers might see. Fledge was built upon that, was built upon Turtle Dove. And basically it expands on Turtle Dove and they're still continuing to iterate. I still expect to see more iterations of this, um, but it expands on it to include a way for on-device bidding algorithms um, to use additional information from a new trusted server. They're kind of vague on what a trusted server is, um, but it would be defined by compliance with certain principles and policies designed for this purpose. So they're still trying to be really careful with how that audience data is used. Right. And one interesting point is that some of these initiatives have already been blocked in Europe under uh, lack of GDPR compliance. So right now, these tests can only happen mostly in the United States. Um, but yeah, it, it is fascinating because the, the other point that you just made, Amy, is that the auction is partially shifting to the publisher's website. Um, and, and this is, by the way, the whole thing, right? So um, to reframe the whole conversation a little bit, the way that Google has operated for a long time and the way that the internet has operated is there's the cloud, okay? And the cloud is basically Google's infrastructure of servers and everything we've done, everything cool that we've been able to do in the last decade that's based on machine learning and artificial intelligence has relied on that supercomputer that happens to live in the cloud. For us to be able to leverage that, we've had to send data into it. So even if it was my data, my first party data, I had to send it to someone else to do something with it. And then they could send it somewhere else, right? And that's where the privacy generally tends to break down. Now, um, the reason that this happened was because the only supercomputer that could do these machine learning things was the one in the cloud. But the world has evolved. And now we have supercomputers in our pockets. We have iPhones, and they're much, much faster than anything people had, obviously, 10 years ago. So these devices can now do a lot of this processing, a lot of this classification and very simple machine learning on the device itself. So it's the shifting of all the machine learning have, having to happen in the cloud to some of it can happen um, on the device. 
right? So that's how you can build cohorts. But now it also sounds like some of that is shifting to the browser, where the browser might be running on a computer and the browser itself is powerful enough to actually do some of the computation to make that auction work. Um, so it's a fundamental redistribution of where work is done in the internet um, that's teeing up these proposals. One other thing I, I would just throw out there is that this is a really good time if, if you're a publisher to take stock of your ad tech partners and, and your ad tech suite. Um, there is absolutely an opportunity to build your own solutions to, ser to serve those ads and, and to, to engage with those cohorts um, that might actually be a more profitable equation and have better interface for you. So, I mean, uh, the native ad platforms, anytime you're working with a Google or if you're talking about the Facebook iOS ridiculousness, it, they, every single ad platform is going to make it very easy to buy ads through them. It's This is a time for you to disrupt potentially uh, on the native side uh, what those equations look like um, and what kind of uh, relationships you're willing to have serve. Um, one other note um, I, I did want to touch base on when it comes to first party data. When we think about domain structure, um, the 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 main takeaway that that I've I've have from from this whole equation is how many vanity domains, how many country domains, how many subdomains do we have, and how many of those are actually going to be considered in our first party data set. So Jenny Marvin was very gracious to let us know that we have five per first party data set, um, but that that is another consideration as you're thinking about uh, how you're serving ads and kind of what kind of relationships you want to build. Um, is how well you are equipping yourself to, to receive those um, first-party data sets. Right. So this is uh, an article, a post you did on Search Engine Journal. So uh, let's talk about that a bit more, right? So you're talking about subdomains and, and, and really what qualifies as first-party data. Mm -hmm. um, and so your advice is basically if you're the PPC team and you need to have your own landing pages because otherwise the SEO team gets pissed off that you're breaking everything for them, it sounds like that's completely fine. However, there seems to be a limit, like Jenny Marvin from Google now is saying, on you can only have five subdomains connected to be like your first. So I, I, to be clear, and and I am hoping Jenny will respond to this video and 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 clear up if, if this if this was misrepresented based off of the the tweet and, and my advice is that there are, you can have five, up to five vanity domains it, it does appear like the country specific domains and the subdomains uh, you can have as many as you want it's just the the core domain has to, you can only have five so why that matters um, is if you have for example your domain structure as uh, Bose USA and Bose Canada, but all of them are .coms, but the root domain structure is as opposed to just .co.uk or .ca or, or so on and so forth, that is going to require a migration. That is going to require some, some heavy lifting. If, however, your usa.bose.com or uh, bose.com slash uh, Canada slash UK slash what have you, that that also is is fine. It's just it's the specific vanity domains that that can be an issue. Yeah, and then thanks for clarifying that distinction. It's a pretty important one, right? Um, the, the other point you made in the article, and I want to show this on screen here, 
Um, you know, what is the value of audiences, I think? Um, so I think, was this your research, this? Yes, uh, this this was a data set um, I, I put together back uh, when I was at WordStream uh, based off of 21,000 uh, Google accounts at least a dollar uh, of spend. Uh, and A, one thing that broke my heart was that 14% of uh, those uh, that were in the cohort that I was looking at had no audiences associated and they had terrible performance. So it was just the, the, the main moral of the story was if you have no audiences attached, your cost acquisition is going to be high. So this but is the purple I, bar. It's a little bit hard to see, but the purple bar, really high cost per acquisition if you don't do anything with audience. Correct. Um, whereas if you use customer lists, what I found really interesting was that uh, that first party data where you've earned the email, you've earned that ability to communicate with the user uh, beyond just following them around and nagging them to, to look at the ad, like they, they've actually given you that that email, had a better cost per acquisition than website visitors. Um, the similar audiences, which we all tend to be, oh, poo-poo on Google. Google doesn't know how to discover good people for us or even Facebook, poo-poo-poo. Uh, they, they don't know how to find us good folks. Um, those similar audiences actually performed from when you prospect off of that seed of the customer list or, or even the website visitors better than website visitors. Uh, so the the moral of the story from, from this data, at least the lesson I took away, uh, use audiences whenever possible, but the best possible audiences that, that you will be able to have are, are those that you've earned uh, to, to have that continued uh, conversation. And there's a, a question that relates to this, right? So the blue box in that graph right there is for similar audiences. Um, which also performs really well on a cost per acquisition basis. But Marilene mm -hmm. is asking uh, what happens with similar audiences, right? And so his question was a little bit, if you have a cohort, but it's too small, can you like add some similar audiences to that? So the so similar, similar audiences, uh, and, and this may change, similar audiences are going to take that seed audience and find folks that are as similar as possible based off of their behaviors. So as a... Uh, flock and, and cookies as the dust settles, we may see similar audiences improve um, and, and it will enlarge that, that group. So you'll be able to target more effectively off of that similar off of the cohort. You may also uh, see those change uh, and, and it's you really would only wanna do similar audiences off of uh, your first party data exclusively because there's a question of whether the Google's able to get enough signals uh, with these changes. So uh, yes, root answer, yes, similar audiences expand your cohort. Uh, but the caveat is that we won't know whether they will maintain their performance level until after a couple of months where we're fully immersed in this new world. Great. A couple more questions. Um, Amy, I think maybe you'll have an answer for this one. Uh, but Stu is hopeful, I think, that for healthcare uh, remarketing might become available because the data is more privatized, so Google might have fewer concerns. What's your take on yeah. this one? That's a really good question. Um, from a remarketing standpoint, it's really hard to say. I think that they'll still probably be really careful around sensitive categories, but one of the things that really interests me is that beyond advertisers, the fledged documentation actually highlights that third-party ad tech companies and um, publishers could create their own 
segments that they could then make available to advertisers. And the documentation suggests even that some businesses could have the ability to create and monetize some of that data. So one of the questions that I had asked Jenny Marvin um, in an interview that I did with her a couple weeks ago was whether she sees Google offering a third party audience exchange in the future. Just given that the documentation highlights some of those things, I was just under I was just wondering if um, if Google Ads would potentially broker some of that functionality. And her response was that they plan to deepen their support for solutions that build on direct relationships between consumers and the brands and publishers that they engage with. So to me, that sounds pretty promising um, that even for some of those categories that can't currently remarket, there may be more audiences available to them through publishers or potentially other ad tech, um, which may be monetized. So that could be good or bad. Um, but I think that there will be a lot of audience opportunities for us in the future, maybe even more than what we have now. One conjecture point, I don't know that we will have access to that improved uh, remarketing uh, and, and targeting functionality uh, until the ad platforms pass the regulatory uh, scrutiny that they're currently in. Um, so I don't necessarily see any industries that are currently uh, limited or not eligible uh, to target magically being eligible to target because of flock uh, and, and the privacy associated. Um, I a thousand percent agree that it paves the way for for a potential. Um, I just don't think it's realistic to see those sorts of solutions until we're a it's it's fully rolled out um, and b uh, Congress isn't and uh, the, the the legislation in in the uh, in the EU breathing down the app platforms next. Right. So let, let's talk about timeline. Um, I mean, Flock is happening now. It's being developed. But when are we losing third-party cookies? And when should we expect GDPR compliance? Let's conject. <laughs> well, I mean, twenty twenty-two. That's they they said twenty twenty-two. So I, I I'm planning on having all ducks in order and, and pushing all of the, the folks in my sphere to have their ducks in order by December 31st, 2021, because it is, I mean, it's already getting rolled out to a certain extent. So right now is the time to start testing, start playing with it, start to understand it. Um, yeah. and if it faces delays, well, great. Then at least we're ready ahead of time, but we can still use the old thing until it really goes away. Uh, but, but that said, I mean, so Google's not the only player, right? So a lot of this, um, you know, iOS is changing the rules and the apps are changing the rules. So um, in some way, we need these solutions sooner rather than later because we're already being blocked um, on big parts of our traffic. Yeah. And we have to also remember that Flock is only specific to Google Chrome. So uh, at least I haven't heard anything about any other browsers adopting it at this point. So um, when you think about external ad networks outside of Google ads, this creates some complexity for them because they have to figure out how do they adopt Flock? And then if other browsers don't adopt Flock, do they use different identifiers with different browsers? And then um, just from a GDPR standpoint, um, the concern right now, I think, with Flock is that what Google was trying to do is replace third-party cookies with a way that publishers and advertisers could still work together because they knew that if they didn't create a way for advertisers and publishers to work together, then 
somebody else would. And that could be more invasive and it could be more damaging potentially even than third-party cookies. But the critics of Flock currently are saying, um, right now you still could do a fingerprint of somebody and not only would you have their fingerprint, which already narrows down who they potentially are, but now you combine that with their Flock and now it makes it a lot easier to figure out exactly who they are. So they're still working out ways to make sure that it's really protecting people's privacy as opposed to doing the opposite. Yeah, so a lot of this is going to evolve. Um, and then also the flock mechanism, again, it's described, it's an open API. So there's no restriction that it can only be used by Google. It's just a matter of do the other browsers decide to adopt it. And I think there was exactly. just a story about, what was it? DuckDuckGo did something? No, doesn't ring about. I read something about somebody saying we're not going to participate. Yeah, that was that duck go. Yeah. And how does that actually matter? I mean, they're, they're a search engine and they're already like the private search engine. It doesn't really change much for me. I don't think. Yeah. think um, I, I'm, I guess I wasn't really surprised by it. They're already, you know, so um, they already are so focused on privacy that I wasn't surprised to hear them say they weren't going to support it. Um, but just given that they're a search engine, I'm not exactly sure um, what signals, I'm not exactly sure how, the role of a search engine at this point. That was my cynical response is that they're, they're just looking when they, I don't know uh, if folks saw that Twitter thread that DuckDuckGo put out of here's all the, the things that Google was collecting on you. Look, look at them. Look how terrible they're being. So I, I feel like a lot of the content that's coming out right now that isn't concrete. Here's what to do. Here's how to do it is very PR oriented. Like as much as I'm very excited about the new attribution visibility uh, that we're going to have for display uh, in YouTube, uh, there's an email that went out to uh, today. Um, I feel like the timing of it was very pointed, um, especially with Facebook stuff. So I, my advice is take any any communication, any stance that an ad platform or browser takes as PR first, unless it's it's very specific. Here's what to do. Here's why to do it, so on and so forth. Yeah. OK, let's take one more question that's not tactical. And then we're going to jump <laughs> into exactly what to do. Um, uh, and sorry, they just changed the comment on the screen. But uh, but the question was, so yes, could Congress say we don't like this? Um, yeah, I guess Congress can do that. Um, so, so net neutrality is a good example here. Uh, we mm -hmm. all feared, or at least I feared, net neutrality uh, when when it was introduced, uh, when it it was going to be taken away, and and it like the fact that 